You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Let me take you to a period that I remember, and I know some of our listeners who are either here or will be listening to this later remember, and that was the period of September 1970. There was, and again, there was a, as you know, in the, uh, in, in the, I don't know if it began in the late 60s, I know it definitely began, it was there in the 70s, and continued pretty much for, uh, you know, for quite a while, you know, almost a whole decade there was hi- hijackings were occurring and the hijackings were meant uh to be a form of of terrorist protest um you might remember here in the united states it was take me to cuba right <laughs> that's what it was about it was about um um and it, was it was it engineered by the Cuban government was it take me to Havana was it supposed to sort of be you know arguing about the you know the United States imperialism but hijacking began um, sort of the uh, the method that the terrorists would use for their demands to free prisoners to free hostages and again you know, in other words you have someone on a plane think about it it's logical you have people you know again September 11th was you know, a, a whole different use of the helpless people that are on an airplane. And that, of course, was to use that as a weapon. But here the point was, we've got you. You're on the plane. We're just going to take over the plane. And we have hostages ready-made. And this now will force uh, you to uh, agree to our demands. And this was something that the popular front for the liberation of Palestine and I assume its brother institution, the PLO, was engaging in en masse, in specifically in, in September 1970. And there was a whole series of airplanes, uh, of, of airliners that were targeted. And uh, they wanted to do it all in coordination. And, they were, and there was a, the original plot was to do a whole number of them. And to bring them into this field that was known in, in, in Jordan, Dawson's Field, but that was sort of, I guess, an American name for it. But it was actually near the, the ancient uh, city of Zharka. And that is where Zharka, this is where the, these, air, these various airliners were massed. And they actually grabbed a whole bunch of them. You can go on Wikipedia and read some of the history of how these planes were were um, were, were taken. And um, the air, but I'm speaking specifically about TWA 741. Now I don't know if anyone is lamenting the the passing of TWA, but uh, uh, you know I, I know David and and Mark uh, remember. I think so. Maybe Leon too. That TWA was actually a very major uh, air carrier uh, in our young days, and it was like one of the major air carriers, Trans World Airlines, and um, it it was it was carrying as uh, passengers from uh, Eretz Yisrael uh, through a number of stops, Frankfurt, and then. Um, and, and, and it was going to make a second stop on its way to New York. And it was carrying at the time uh, quite a, uh, an illustrious passenger list. Most prominent on that list, um, I guess it would be Revitzko Kutner. 
Now, Ritzel Hutner uh, was the Rosh Hashiva of Chaim Berlin. And uh, he was actually, part of the reason why he was making these frequent travelings, and he was there, of course, with his, uh, with his, with his, with his wife, and he was there with his, um, his daughter, uh, Rebetzin Bruria David and uh, Jonathan David. Um, and, of course, there was a number of other Jewish passengers there as well. And the, the flight was diverted uh, over Belgium, I believe, and they turned it back to Jordan. And this was in Connaissance with a bunch of a number of other, uh, a number of other flights. And um, I remember this. I was uh, when this occurred, uh, and the images of all these planes that they had captured, and the vicious um, uh, targeting of anyone who was a Jew almost Nazi-like, even people who were basically Catholic, who had converted but had Jewish names or the Jewish fathers, they were all separated, and it was clear that they were going to be uh, the, the hostages that would now have to um, be the bargaining ship in the demand that the popular revelation front would have for the release of Arab um, or or their own terrorists that had been uh, that were in Israeli prisons. And that was the background of what was occurring there, and it was then it was right before Rosh Hashanah. It was in a really a terrible period. Uh, again, the Six Day War um, was was over. Obviously, it was in 1970. Uh, this was a period I think that those of you that are old enough to remember know that it was sort of like a love affair period in the West with Israel. Um, Israel had uh, had won an incredible, and I'll say it here, you know, despite uh, people who will perhaps, uh, you know, offer their vicious uh, disagreement, uh, a miraculous war, a miraculous war that was obviously first and foremost contributed to the to the grace and and, and power of God, but also uh, God worked through. Incredibly courageous and wonderful young people uh, who had dedicated themselves to to the state and to defending the state in in a way that the whole world really took note and was riding this incredible recognition and that of 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 the beauty of what had been accomplished by the Jewish people in the state of Israel. Yes, true. 1948, there was almost a sense of, of, you know, thank God that they, that the Jews will not be obliterated because of the Holocaust. But in 1967, there was an idea of, look how the people have transformed. Look what they've been able to do. Look at the strength that they've been able to project. And the military victory was an indicator of the, of how ingenuity brilliance and determination had fused together uh, to create. Now, of course, you know, and, and we understood there was also the hand of God uh, that, that, was, that was shining itself. The PLO's reaction and the population front and these type of events that started to occur in greater number started chipping away at that. It started chipping away at it, but still, in 1970, there was a tremendous amount of of umbrage and hatred to the world towards what was occurring. And of course, the Israeli uh, official 
um, position was, and it still is, that there are no negotiations with terrorists. We are not going to negotiate. And even though it would seem that the targeting of the Jewish passengers would mean their torture and possibly eventual death, which was clearly, um, again, I don't have you know, the records of what was being said, but one can imagine the treatment. So this is a, 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 a very uh, a difficult quandary. Now, because it featured uh, at this time one of the premier Rosh Yeshiva, and, uh, you know, I, I look at Rav Hutner, of course, as this great venerated sage, and he does, you know, he does live, uh, you know, another ten years and, and longer. Um, uh, but he was, you know, relatively a young man. Uh, again, not you know, he's in the '60s, but he was already a, a very much a revered Rosh Hashiva. Rav Hutner um, was, and we could give a whole sheer about Rav Hutner and his unique personality. But I think what's important to note is that he had scores and scores of, of, of students, thousands of Talminim who had passed through Chaim Berlin, and people around the world who had come to appreciate the special type of brilliance that Rav Hutner um, embodied. I think today, uh, when people think about you know, writers of the 20th century who crystallized Hasidic thought uh, in, in a way that made it moving and in, as, a, as a piece of Lithuanian Talmudic thinking, you would have to put Rav Hutner as probably the number one representative of that. There are people who won't open up a Hasidic Sefer at all, uh, you know, a Kedusha Slevi or um, a Toldas Yaakov Yosef or a Degel Machne Ephraim, but love the Pachat Yitzchak, love the Sfarim that were produced in his lifetime and then uh, came out um, even in, in, in greater, after his death, other uh, pieces of it. So he is one of, was a great Rosh Hashiva and a great Jewish thinker. So even at the time, people said we have to do something about this. And therefore, a number of his students had already become quite wealthy, uh, real estate magnates and others, and they were going to raise the millions of dollars, whatever it was, and work with the State Department, because as he was an American citizen, to try to free Ravutner, irregardless of everyone else. Now, I guess what that meant, Rav Hutner and his wife, and, and, and Rabbi Yonas and David, who was also obviously uh, a major Talmud Chacham, parenthetically, Bruria too. <laughs> uh, his daughter was also one of the, the, the main editor and writer of many of Rav Hutner's uh, Maimorim. So, but it was about saving Rabbi Hutner. And they actually felt there was halachic precedent to be able to do that. And um, that was uh, the issue that Rabbi Yaakov Kamnetsky uh, reacted to. And in order to understand that, I'm going to give you the background of this idea of rescuing people, rescuing people who have been captured. Okay, so some of this material might be familiar to you. I still think it's worthwhile uh, for us to learn it up. Okay, so here is, there's a, uh, in the fourth parak in Gitan, and it continues into the fifth parak. Uh, there is a, you know, uh, 
uh, there is a number of Mishnayot that talk about Takanot, including the famous Takon of Prusbo, which we'll be speaking about quite a bit in a few months. But that's where the Mishnah and the Gemara and Gitan deals with these rabbinical legislations that were made. Some of them run counter to the Torah uh, and, and, and alter things, and they alter them based on the principle of Tikkun Olam. Now, you know, this is not what what tablet magazine or Hillary Clinton or others, uh, or again, you know, you hear in, in, in the conservative world a lot, Tikkun Olam, it does not mean to make the world better. It doesn't mean that we need to go out and build habitats for humanity. That's a great thing, but that's not what Chazal mean, at least here, for Tikkun Olam. And it's not necessarily a contradiction, but it doesn't mean what you think it does. Now, so basically, let's read it again. What do you have? You have captives. And there's a certain amount of money the captive should, uh, should bring. Again, I'm going to speak, you have to realize, what was the reason people would, would, would kidnap people or take people? Well, anybody who knows about the 1609 uh, thesis of, uh, of um, you know, the New York Times or anything about the history of slavery, people would be captured and put to work, sometimes sex slaves, that's true, but other times they'd just be taken to, to, to do work. And they, that's what they would do. Now, to um, ransom them, it's obviously it's piracy, and a person has a person's right to be his own person is is is, is crucial. But remember, from the perspective of the pirate, the pirate in many ways sets his eye on someone that can now be put to work for free. So now the question is, when you redeem them, how much do you pay for them? So remember, they are considered basically a human being whose body can do work. And if he's a big strapping fellow, so let's say the, the price for him on the slave market would be a thousand uh, shekel, 2,000 shekel. So when it's time to redeem such a person, we don't redeem them for more than they are worth. Now, if we pay the guy what they're worth. The guy goes, okay, I got my money. I can go buy someone else like this somewhere, some other slave market. But if we pay more, that's a problem. We'll see why. Now the mission goes on. Now this means something else. This means negotiating with the, with the uh, pirate and paying the money. Mavrichen would mean some sort of sneaky way to get him out. Somehow you slip him uh, a file in the cake. Somehow you're able to uh, send a, a, a passenger pigeon that uh, lands and drops something that allows him. Um, uh, you're able to make contact with him and give him the means that uh, like Martin Landau in the old Mission Impossible could go put on a mask and look like one of the uh, he can look like one of the captors and somehow slip his bonds and run away. And, and then he puts the other mask on the guy who was, who, who was, who was, the, he puts the mask of himself on this other guy. And therefore, right, you remember all the old, that would be Mavrichen as Hashvuyen, 
right? Or maybe even just causing some sort of, you know, come in with, with, with garbage cans and, 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 and metal poles and make such a big noise that the captives, uh, that the pirates run to see what's going on. And then uh, you sneak in there and cut the bonds and escape with them. Okay. Does anybody here, Entebbe here? Okay, Entebbe is actually a little bit different, but it's sort of like this, right? And Entebbe is, of course, also going to speak about Entebbe as well. So, you don't do that either. Mipnei tikkun olam. Hmm, what's the tikkun olam there? So, in order to understand that, you have to see, Rabbi Shiva Mengamliel says, Mipnei tikkun olam. Now, this is the Nasi of Klal Yisrael, Rabban Shiva Mengamliel, tikkun olam. Okay, so the Tanakama, or the first statement, says it's because of if they, if we sneakily get this guy out, the next time they are going to do things a lot worse because piracy is going to continue, kidnapping is going to continue. And now, when they get somebody, they are going to put him in such chains that there's going to be no way. So for the next captive, it's worth it for this captive not to be free, because if he gets freed, these pirates aren't going to turn into 4-H Boy Scouts. They're going to still be pirates. And once they've seen that they've been hoodwinked this way, they're not going to let themselves get fooled again, right? And what are they going to do? They're going to be even more strict on the next one. So that's what Tikkun Olam means here. And Shimon Gamliel says that it's about the other people, Takonas HaShavuyin, meaning the ones that are already in captivity, meaning that let's say that you can get one guy out. Well, if one guy gets out, they are going to turn their cruelty towards the others. The other guy will suffer. So that's why Shimon Gamliel looks at things. He looks at things about what's happening now to them. And if the Gemara is going to say that if it turns out that there aren't any, and the, the Bartanur explains it based on the Gemara, I'll show you. We're not really worried about the future potential. We're not worried about new captives that might happen. And because we snuck this guy out, the next time they do it, they're going to put these guys in uh, chains. If, if we can only get one out, we're not going to get that one guy out because of what that would mean towards the others that are still there. But if, if he's the only prisoner, we will do what we can to sneakily get him out of the clutches of these pirates who have done something terribly evil. And we don't have to worry about the future, whereas the Tanakama is worried about the future. That's Tikkun Olam in the future. That's the question of how you understand the, 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 what tikkun olam means. In other words, tikkun olam in general means the possibility of things that aren't here right now, meaning like the word nelam. It's the world of what we're considering the future to happen. That's tikkun olam in terms of not causing an escape because the next time it's going to be worse. Okay, now that we've seen what 
what Tikkunova means in the first case, we can sort of speculate what does it mean in the second case, what does it mean in the first case? Whereas when we're paying money and we're meeting the, the captives, the captors exaggerated demands, uh, elevated demands. It, ex- it would seem, based on this machlokas about Ein Mavrichen, that it's not so much here, it's for what's going to be later. That's Tikkun Olam. That, that this case we're going to suspend our emotion and concern because of the greater situation that can happen after this particular one. Yes, this man was saved. He's now back with his family. But what's the result of the fact of the captors having all this money? So that's the Gemara's question we've given these captors more money than they deserve. What's going to happen? So is the problem, is the problem because the Gemara Gitan says, we're going to deplete the Jewish community because when they see they can get more money, they're going to say, hmm, you know what? There's one thing is to, is to be a pirate get this guy and put him on the cotton field or whatever it is to do the work. But if by capturing Jews, we end up knowing we're going to get more money, so we're just going to keep on doing it. So we might lose our our slave, but we're going to get much more money on each slave that we took. And then we're going to be able to get all, uh, use the amount of money we have to get all, a whole series of slaves. So by us going through this, that's going to be the, the, the rationale of the pirates. And that's going to deplete the community. So it's about the community depletion. That's what Takanos, that's what Tikkun Olam means. Not the world in general, but the Jewish world in particular and their funds will be depleted. And if that's depleted, they're not going to have money for tzedakah, they're not going to have money for bridges, they're not going to have money for water, they're not going to have money for everything that you need money for because of the exorbitant cost it is to save these people. Oh, Dilma, maybe the reason is, Mishum the reason is, is because of we don't want to encourage them and to have another captive. We don't want, now that they were successful here, there's untold people in the future. As if we put a stop to it here and we don't pay the money, now, even though, again, terrible things are, might occur, imprisonment for life, degradation, and, and, and with women, ultimate degradation and, and, and death, all of those things will occur. But we need to do this. Otherwise, there's going to be more of it happening. So you're sort of, we're sacrificing this person for the sake of people that won't be grabbed in the future. So the Gemara says, the Gemara understands that there's a difference between these two, which means... Listen to what I'm going to say. If you're expecting the community to pay for it, community funds that are from the city, from the from the from the state, that's an issue. But what about a private party? Rashi says a father or a karov. 
people that feel close, that want to raise the money. We see Levi Bardarga. I don't know if he shows up any other time in Shas. I don't believe so. But Parka Labirte, his daughter was, was taken by pirates, by, captor, by the captors, and he paid... Um, he paid 13,000 dinars of. Today, sir, I'll pay dinars of. Now, 2,000, uh, 200 dinar of silver, uh, which is much less, a dinner of silver is much less than a dinner of zav. 200 silver dinarim is enough for a person to live for a year. Um, 12,000 um, uh, I'm sorry, 13,000 would be enough for a person to live for six years if it was silver. And gold is much more than that, perhaps even 25 times more than that. I'm not sure exactly, but possibly 25 times more than that. So we're talking about an incredible amount of money. We're talking about what we would say today is probably you know, $20 million, $25 million to get his daughter back. Omar Abayu. So Abayu said, well, how do we know that what, that, what, what, what Levi did, he did it, but maybe the Chachamim said, no, you shouldn't have been doing this. So again, the Gemara is assuming by bringing the proof that individuals can do it. But then Abai says, maybe not. Abai says, maybe it's not about depleting the public funds. Because even though uh, the daughter of Levi was lucky, or the, the Hashgacha was that her father was a multi-multi-billionaire and was able to rescue her, that is going to cause a precedent that will lead to more of this and to daughters of not billionaires. And it's going to lead more to that situation. And that's the, that's what we're talking about when it comes to the Tikkun Olam. The Gemara doesn't have a answer. And this is a very important answer because as you remember from the story from Rav Hutner, Let's put aside the uh, issues of the Israeli government. The Americans who were wanting to redeem him, okay, we've got the money, we're going to do it. It's not going to come from uh, the public funds. It's going to come from a number of, of, of millionaires who would put the money up to save their Rebbe. So the Gemara does not have a... A, uh, an answer for this. So it remains an open question. Now, um, Tosfos on this Gemara, there's actually two Tosfos in, uh, in Gitin that deal with this issue, and both of them are really uh, essential. So I'm going to show you the, uh, the Tosfos. Um, So one of the things that, of the hallmarks of Tosfos is that uh, Tosfos opens up this Gemara to Sister Sugyot. That's part of what Tosfos does. Tosfos is not, you know, Rashi doesn't do this often at all. Tosfos always does. And that's why Tosfos called the Tosfos to Rashi, because he connects 
the, the discussion here to a discussion somewhere else, which doesn't necessarily bring in our Gemara, but is clearly related to it and is, is, a, is a part of it. So Tosis asks from the Gemara Suvis. The Gemara Suvis speaks about, the, the Mishnah Suvis speaks about one of the principles that's laid down in the Ksuva, which is that if you are, and again, it happened frequently, if a, a wife in agreeing to this contract of being uh, the wife of this person needs to know the Ksuva gives her the, 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 the not satisfaction, it gives her the guarantee that she will be taken care of. And if she is captured, I will, I will redeem you and bring you back to be my wife. That's one of the principles in the Ksuva that was written. So, the, the Gemara Abraisa on that Mishnah Suva says, what about if the pirates want 10 times her worth? What's the halacha? So the Brisa there has a machlokas. Tosis only quotes one opinion. But the Brisa does say the first time you are bound to do it. Now, you could say that's for the Ksuva. In other words, the ksuva is um, binds you to do it. Now, in many ways, you have to understand the girl, the girl's family has given something to, and the woman himself has given the woman and girl has given something to the husband. The woman has given um, her fealty and money that she'll earn and monies that came in from her father and the right uh, to basically control his wife's earnings. The Gemara says the reason why the Torah, the, the Chachamim, created such a situation of dependence was in order to give him an incentive to redeem her. And that was part of the reason why he was given those rights. So he is called to be able to redeem her. And um, it didn't happen often, but it happened often enough. So let's say once again, they want more than her worth. So the Gemara says the first time you do it, even if it's 10 times more. So Tosu says, hmm, you see from here that it has to do seemingly with, it has to do with Duchka de Tzibura. And, you know, billionaires will now be able to redeem their, their individuals. And basically this idea of not paying the, the terrorists only applies when it's governments or, or, or communal money. So Tosus answers an amazing answer. Tosus says, as you can see on the board, shiny ishto dahabikigufo. Your wife is you. And we know this takana doesn't apply to yourself. Now Tosus assumes that you can do whatever you can to get out. Chazal, no matter how great and austere they were, cannot 
legislate a person that he shouldn't be able to save himself. Let's go back to the Mishnah. Mishnah says you can't use a sneaky way to get out. Well, how about if, you know, you know, you know, he's Steve McQueen and he knows how to somehow get a hold of the motorcycle and he's able to uh, points, if you know what I'm referring to here, he's somehow able to uh, get his motorcycle and able to, to jump the fence and able uh, to escape uh, the, the prison. Now, if it's true that by you escaping, you're going to make it worse for the others, how could you do that? So Tosu says the legislation can only be about others. It can't be about the person himself. A person can pay everything. You, you've, got your, you've got the prime directive to live. And that can't be affected by rabbinical legislation, no matter how august the body that institutes it. And therefore, your wife has the same rights, Tosu says. Ishto is kigufo, and that's more than a person's daughter. Because Gemara does not say, oh, a daughter? Oh, a daughter's like you. No, no. A wife is more you than your daughter is. And that's Tosus' first answer to why the Gemara, and therefore the Gemara in Ksuvis, although it does seem to have relevance here, and relevance it has, but it cannot answer our question completely. Okay. Which means... A person, of course, can be Poe to himself, and he can Poe to his wife. And by the way, Tosis leaves unstated. What happens if they if they grab your wife again? Do you still pay ten times more or not? Okay. So the Gemara actually, really, we'll see the Gemara there if we have time. Okay. Then Tosis goes on and asks another question. Tosu says, all right, I have another place where it seems that more money was paid than should have been. Okay, where is that? So that was a story that many uh, people read on Tishabov, the Gemara in Gitin that deals with all the horrible things that happened in um, in um, when the Horban occurred. The Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya, Tosus goes on, the park of Ahitinuk, Harbe. What happened was that Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya, the great Rabbi Yeshua, who was considered like an Avbezdin, and in many ways became a sort of a, a, um, a favorite of the, um, the Roman world. Eventually, he was able to put down rebellions of the Jews against Rome. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya was, I want to show you the Gemara here. The Gemara says that he, um, yeah, this is a very famous Gemara, and here it is. Gemara talks about Rabbi Shua ben Hananiah, Holach Krach Shabaromi. Even though the Jews were considered despised and hated by the nations, um, he uh, had access to the, the Rome. Uh, he was considered a more positive person. Uh, he was the Av Bezdin. He, by the way, was the one that was put down by Rabbi Gamliel um, 
and you know had to suffer through uh, terrible times. Um, but the uh, uh, he was a darling of the Romans. Um, he also was uh, very much against uh, a lot of the. Uh, uh, he was against a lot of the the Christian upstarts. A very a very important figure. Also, Rabbi Akiva's. One of Rebekah's main teachers. Anyway, so he, they told him, "Tinok echad yesh There's a certain Jewish child that has been uh, captured. He's very, he's very uh, striking. He's beautiful looking. Uh, he has wonderful hair. Kavotzas of sturislo taltalim. Holach va'omad al pesach beisasurim. And he stood and was there by the prison. Um, and he's, he, he quoted a Pesach. Who's the one who, who gave the Jewish people to be trampled and for the Jewish people to be just victims, to be plundered, which was a quote of a Pesach. And the child, who was only three years old, or less, perhaps three or more, he said, We sinned to God. We didn't walk in his ways. That's why things are happening. Like children like me and others are now prisoners here in Rome. When he heard something so incredible that this boy, this, this wunderkind, this savant, this blessed child somehow was not only aware of the psukim, he was sharp enough to recognize and somehow way, way uh, wise beyond his years to understand that there's a God in the world and there's a Torah in the world. He said, This is the type of person who will be a leader. He will paskin for Klal Yisrael. So, Avodah she'eni zozmikan. I'm not going to leave here. Ad shefteno b'chol momen shepos going to love. I'm going to raise the money. I don't know where he had the money. The Gemara, if you remember, in um, in, um, in in Brochos, when it speaks about Rabbi Yeshua's home, it speaks about how dark the walls were because he was working as a blacksmith and he was just, you know, so he was not... Uh, at least at that time, independently wealthy at all. But somehow, he was able to somehow raise the money and paid whatever it was to get this little boy out. And the truth is, is that he eventually did become even at a very young age, a premier posseg for Klal Yisrael. And who was he? He was Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha. Okay, so Tosus is saying, how did he do this? How did, um, how did uh, Rabbi Yeshua allow, again, he saw this kid, but this goes against things, right? How did he, how did he take more money than he should have? Than, than should have been played for him. So Tosu says, isn't that a proof that if you can somehow individually raise the money, and I don't even think it was individually here, I think he must have gotten the money from the Tzibor. So this is a question no matter what. No matter how you learn, this was the wrong thing to do. 
So how could he have done that? So Tosfus explains this, and this is the principle that the uh, frucht handlers and company wanted, if those were the ones involved, that wanted to do this for Rav Hutner. And that's what Tosva says. He was a great Torah person. He's great in Torah. Someone who's great in Torah, the rules don't apply. Not just good, super, muflag b'chokhmah. Okay? Inami, b'shas chur ben abayis lo shayach b'lo Think about it. It's not like we have this thriving community and we're dealing with these people who are going to come and grab us. This was the Khurban, this was post the destruction. We are a conquered people. So many of us are already in prisons of one time or another. Rabbi Shua had the ability to stride like a free person. But most of the people were anyway in prison at that time. So the idea that somehow, oh, the Jews are now going to be targets, that's not going to happen. We are a defeated, decimated, in Yeshua's time, they were defeated and decimated people. And they were mostly in prison anyway. So if they were defeated and decimated in prison, what, what now all of a sudden, oh, we got Jewish targets? That's the, the, two, the answer Tosfus gives. Now, that answer, that he was muflag um is, is developed, uh, and I, I believe in a way that's more particular and, uh, by the Ramban. And I could give a whole sheer here about how the Ramban uh, develops the ideas found in this Tosfus. In fact, one of the great things about the Ramban is, and if you listen to our Ramban shirim that we give on a regular basis on Sundays available on this platform, you will hear the Ramban's amazing ability to take a lot of the principles and ideas found in the Tosfus in terms of what should be the question to work with and expanding them in a real brilliant fashion beyond what you might have just gotten from the sort of cardboard phrase, not cardboard in a negative way, but plastic cardboard phrases of Tosas really are opened up by the Ramban. So what the Ramban, when he quotes uh, this answer of Tosas, this is the way he explains it. Why? Now this is, I want to tell you, the other Rishonim who quote their spiritual Rebbe, the Ramban, leave this part out. This is very politically incorrect words for some of you listening for the Ramban. But this sheer... Um, is, is, is always about the postgame of what they said. So I want you to hear it. She'im ovdu Yisrael mamon. Let's say, okay, what happens? Um, the community loses money. We don't have money anymore. Or let's say nebuch mesu misoneim. It doesn't really mean soneim. It means from them. The Ramban didn't want to write poo poo poo. He didn't want to write more Jews will die, which is what could happen. Yesh lanu 
There are others. It's a tragedy, but they there's they're replaceable. The Talmud Chacham ain't lonu When someone's a Talmud Chacham, there's a specialty of 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 what that person is. There's nothing else like them. Vikodim liftos lemelech, and even if there would be a question of the king, who was in, perhaps even anointed and was the one that was leading things. If you look in the Bryce in Haroyos, you'll see a Talmud Chacham comes before a Melech. Therefore, Rabbi Shua realized that this person was going to be a Talmud Vosik. He would be a great Talmud Chacham, and therefore he was po to him. So that is the standard that seemingly goes beyond. So now we come back to uh, Rav Hutner and others. Maybe they were right. We don't have to worry about it. Now, in Shulchan Aruch, where this is dealt with, Tosus' answer is not mentioned. And, you know, they wanted to use Tosus and the Ramban, who explained the Tosus, to say Rav Udner was one of such a person. So I want to share with you the words of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky in this regard. So Rav Shechter, in his Sefer Be'ikve Yatzon, which might have been a collection of articles he had written earlier, and, and I'm not sure if this was an article that he had written earlier, and the exact date of when the original article is. He starts with a principle we've talked about many times, which is that principles of life and death, and usually not endanger yourself, don't apply at the time of war. War, by definition, that the Israelis have been involved in and anyone has been involved in, we don't look at terms of do you endanger yourself? Do you have a right to endanger yourself to go to war? Every war is a sakonis nefoshos. Even a war that was not decreed by God, a war that was decreed by the state that would be engaged in, and the issues of the normal halachic principles of, hmm, should I do this or not? I might be in danger. Myself do not apply when you're a soldier in war. And that is a principle that Menachas Chinach says, and Rav Shechter is able to ascribe it to a number of other great uh, scholars and thinkers, uh, the Nitziv and even the Briskerov and uh, the Posek from Tel Aviv, Rabbi Yeshua Arenberg. Okay. Venira, Rav Shechter says, the after ein even if it's not an actual conventional war where they are shooting at us and there aren't planes that are dropping bombs. Rav Shechter and I, I spoke to uh, uh, Chaim Jachter this morning about this. And he's clear that Rav Shechter would, would say it's still true today, 73 years later. Medina We are still at war with them. Now, okay, what does that mean? What's the ramification? So he speaks about TWA Flight 741. The 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 the, the, the front for the population took the planes, took them to Jordan. Rav Hutner, as I said, he mentions here of Hutner. They wanted to, based on the Tosvos, the way it's described in the Ramban, 
I erred before Tosus's words are brought in Shulchan Aruch Yeridea. It, it is brought in Shulchan Aruch, as Rav Shechter points out, the idea of a Talmud Chacham being different. And there were people who went together with the millionaires and Paskin based on the Tosus and the Shulchan Aruch that Rav Hutner was just as great as that child that Rishua ben Hanania saw. And therefore, we will pay whatever it takes to get him out, regardless of the ramifications to the others. Rabbi Yaakov says, I'm not saying it's not in Shulchan Aruch, but you're wrong. Now, where did Rabbi Yaakov write this? Where did Rabbi Yaakov say it? Where was this meeting going on? In 1970, Rav Shechter was not the Godel HaPoskin the way he is today. He was a young man who was one of the you know, prime students of, of Rav Soloveitchik and clearly uh, a, a young scholar on the rise. But somehow he was privy to this statement of Rabbi Yaakov, who also, although was known as the Pikeach of the door in some ways, um, in the 70s and 80s, many of the... Uh, questions, the bigger philosophical, educational questions were, came to Rabbi Yaakov's door and not to his friend Rav Moshe. But he says, What's going on is there's a Jewish community, maybe hated, maybe targeted, but basically there's no war happening. He says, Bishas what we're saying is that we're going to cease a ceasefire and we're going to give money to the, the enemy. Because then Rav Yaakov says, they are, they are at war with us. You've now given them money. This isn't just a pirate trying to make money. This is a way to get back their foot soldiers and they are our sworn enemy who want us dead. And what's going to happen by giving money, by giving those millions to save Rav Hutner, it's going to go into the coffers of the, the, the popular front and the PLO and that's going to make them stronger in war. When it comes to war, things are different. Rav Yaakov said the, a state was declared in 1948 on approximately this day. And the Arab countries around waged war. And even though that there was an armistice and there's cold peace, there has not been a peace with the Arab world. Egypt, yes, maybe Bahrain, the UAE. So therefore, Rabbi Yaakov said that all the wars and everything that's occurred and all the the raids into Israel and even the 72, which happened later, of course, the, the attack in Munich and everything that's occurred and Rav Shechter said, even today, it's all an extension of that war. Which is, as Rav Shechter points out, 
the independence. This war has been going on since the beginning. And therefore, the country is at war. So, you cannot give money to the State Department and funnel the money to the terrorists. Because what you're doing is you are strengthening our enemies who are at war to kill us. Normal rules of of, of how to deal with communities and, and, and people's lives and even the significance of Tamida Chachamim don't apply during a time of war. Based on this, Rav Shechter wants to go further. If Rav Yaakov was right, that we are at war with them, and it's a continuation of the 48 war, because they still want Tel Aviv, they still want Haifa. So whoever is involved in terrorist activity, whether it's an eight-year-old child or a pregnant woman who straps bombs to her, that is a soldier who is fighting against us. And we need to shoot to kill. And this is the part that's going to upset some of you. Rav Shechter goes on. When they are scheduling these type of events, it's going to be difficult to know the way things are set up, who are the terrorists, and who are the bystanders. The, the, the Israeli army needs to do what it takes to kill even others that are innocent, that don't necessarily agree with what their country is doing. And the source that he brings to this is the famous statement of the Maral in Parshas Vayishlach when he speaks about the attack on that, 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 that Shimon and Levi unleashed on the city of Shechem, where there were people who had nothing to do with the rape and kidnapping of Dina, and yet were slaughtered and killed. Because, the Maral says, they were part of this country. And when you are a, a country at war, the whole country, unfortunately, suffers due to whether it's their choice of leader or the leader has been foisted upon them, that's the nature of war. And therefore, Rav Shechter says, despite, you know, there is this international uproar of Israel not doing enough, and we know how much they do to try to get people, again, the, the great Israeli army does in terms of clearing the place and sending leaflets, but the idea, and again, we talk about the Geneva Convention or not, but if Schechter and others have used this statement of Rabbi Yaakov to say, we are at war. And therefore, um, that that has to be our attitude. And this is an attitude that, um, that it's very tragic when it occurs. But that means people like Rav Huttner will have to sit and rot and possibly die. Because during wartime, we can't give 
aid to the enemy who is trying to basically, it's, there's an overwhelming issue here. It's more than human life because human life doesn't play a role the way it does in peacetime. When a situation of war occurs, there is an elevation totally of, of, of what the interaction means. And therefore, Rabbi Yaakov, as you can see, that was the, that, that ramification. A similar issues, again, would be involved in, in, in the Antebi uh, um, uh, negotiations. Now, of course, what Israel did instead, and I know this is not 1948, but anybody, again, we just have to mention the incredible heroism, uh, the incredible uh, uh, what the Israelis did um, in, in Operation Thunderbolt to, to save so many of those people and not negotiate, not at all. Um, and if anybody you know, uh, has issues with the legitimacy of the state and the evils that the state sometimes perpetrates, whether it's the abortions and other things that are that that are a sorry, sorry commentary on on on, on modern life and, and 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 still the great need we have for for religious understanding that we hopefully will soon come. All that being said, just read about the incredible heroism of the Entebbe raid, and read about what occurred there. The incredible. If anyone has any question about the beauty of what Yom Ha'atzma'ut leads to in terms of solidarity and, and love for the others, and all you need to do is really think about that. Think about the, the, you know, the, what, what occurred in it. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.